Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. Hello. Ahead of my next podcast's deep dive into martial arts and self-protection lessons taken from the Star Wars franchise to coincide with the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi, Jamie, you can type this shit but you sure can't say it. Move your mouth when you're typing. I thought it might be the ideal time to revisit an old article. May 2023 is the 18th anniversary of a front page lead article I wrote for Martial Arts Illustrated connecting the more obvious martial arts tropes with George Lucas's famous two trilogies of movies. It went out ahead of the premiere of Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, the sixth and then final intended instalment of the Skywalker Saga. Star Wars, the greatest martial arts movie in the galaxy? I sense something. A presence I've not felt since... Darth Vader in Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. What is the most popular and famous martial arts movie of all time? Enter the Dragon, I hear you answer. My apologies to Bruce Lee's dedicated army of followers, but if you believe this, then let me break the truth to you gently. The most successful martial arts film, and the most successful movie franchise in the world, is Star Wars currently being represented in its final episode at a cinema near you. It is also worth mentioning that Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith, the sixth Star Wars film, is possibly the most eagerly anticipated martial arts film of all time. Of course, it's only fair to point out that Star Wars is also the most successful science fiction, fantasy or action film series of all time. Even up against heavy opposition this year such as the latest big-budget adaptation of H.G. Wells' classic sci-fi War of the Worlds, starring Tom Cruise, and the return of the Cape Crusader in Batman Begins, starring the superbly cast Christian Bale, this last prequel of the fantasy series will most probably rake in more box office revenue than any other picture in 2005. I admit that when one considers the usual theme of what we term a martial arts film, Lucas's space opera is not the most obvious candidate in this genre. It has nothing to do with Asia. It doesn't feature an illegal tournament. It's not a cop thriller and there aren't thin excuses thrown in to explain why guns are not used. In fact, if one goes through the normal criteria again, the location is not even on this planet. Law enforcement is not in the equation and guns are used regularly on the martial artists. Nevertheless, it's still a martial arts epic series through and through that was inspired by martial arts cinema and continues to inspire martial arts culture. 
Star Wars owes a lot of its themes to Akira Kurosawa's samurai epics of the 1960s. Along with the Flash Gordon chapter plays of the 1940s, George Lucas took much of the plot for his original film Star Wars, later named Star Wars Episode IV A New Hope, from Kurosawa's 1962 feature The Hidden Fortress. The Japanese film storyline centres on a perilous quest involving Princess Yuki, her courageous samurai protector, General Rokurota Makabe and two bumbling thieves. The princess and her warrior bodyguard have their obvious counterparts in the characters Princess Leia and the Jedi Padawan, learner, Luke Skywalker. The two bickering buffoons, who provide the film's comic relief, are replaced by the two equally bickering droids, C-3PO and R2-D2, who feature in every Star Wars film. In fact, they're the only two characters who appear in each instalment. George Lucas draws heavily upon ideas from traditional martial arts in his original trilogy, episodes 4 through to 6. Amongst the myriad of futuristic space vehicles, gadgetry and multi-shaped aliens, there are very prominent and typical martial arts qualities represented in all of the films. Lucas's early influence definitely comes from Japanese samurai culture. The pivotal character of the series, Darth Vader, wears a fearsome black helmet and mask, clearly based on the shape of samurai battle helmets. Luke Skywalker, in Episode 4, the first film, is decked out in a white tunic outfit and in Episode 6, a black version of the outfit that resembles the dogies of traditional Japanese martial arts. The standard long-robed uniform of the Jedis and their nemesis, the Sith, can be compared to the traditional Japanese kimono and hakama clothing often worn in the dojos of Aikido, traditional Jiu-Jitsu, Kendo, Ayudo and so on. The swordplay in the original film, with the series' now famous laser sword, known as a lightsaber, is perhaps the most obvious physical representation of martial arts in Star Wars. The fight scenes that feature these weapons bring the key characters up close and personal, demonstrating their individual styles and often result in important plot turns. The original film's duel between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi was choreographed in a Kendo-esque style. It was only later that George Lucas decided against the idea that lightsabers were to be heavy weapons and didn't have to be held in two-handed grips all the time. The fights began to include elements from European fencing styles and more of a story was developed. Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, is often considered to be the best film in the series for its dark, unhollywood type ending, imaginative special effects and a plot that is far deeper than the original. However, what many neglect to mention is that it displays perhaps one of the most dramatic fight scenes in cinema history. The long pauses between flurries of fighting, the dialogue and the unfolding story between the two fighters, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, are what fight storytelling is all about. After an exciting, tension-filled and location-changing battle where the two duelists lose each other on two occasions and drama from other scenes is edited in between, the villain actually wins. Harking back to the methods of several schools of Ayudo, Vader uses a merciful technique and cuts Luke's hand off. Then we have the revelation which led cinema viewers to a greater understanding of the Darth Vader character. The main villain in the series reveals himself to be Luke's father. In true self-sacrificing samurai fashion, Luke, like his mentor in the previous film, decides to opt for death for the greater good. He is, of course, rescued and gets a rematch in Star Wars Episode VI Return of the Jedi where a type of role reversal occurs. Luke is once again lured by the dark side and this time lops off his father's hand but refuses to kill him. Then, in Episode I, The Phantom Menace, champion Wushu exponent Ray Park used his entertaining skills to take the battle to an entirely different level. 
using the previously unseen double-ended lightsaber, Ark demonstrated far more than simple gymnastics and wire-assisted leaps in his portrayal of the dedicated Sith Lord Darth Maul, who became the face of the film's publicity campaign. Park's athletic ability embodied what George Lucas called the golden era of the Jedi. The British martial artist wielded the double-ended weapon like a Chinese wushu staff and threw in standard and 360-degree butterfly kicks amongst his tumbling tricks. He takes on his two Jedi enemies in a peculiar fighting setup that was only recently introduced to Western audiences when Jet Li took on Danny Glover and Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon 4. Before then, two good guys against one bad guy was not good audience psychology for fair-minded Westerners. However, this is quite a common setup in Hong Kong cinema and is seen in many Kung Fu classics. When a series of events split the three combatants up and each is sectioned off by transparent force fields, Maul and his immediate enemy Qui-Gon Jinn, who has part of his name derived from the genuine oriental art of Qi Gong, display distinctly different methods for preparing for their final round. Qui-Gon Jinn sits in the Japanese Sezo position, meditating, whereas Maul paces like a wild animal in a manner similar to what self-defense instructors consider to be an aggressive fence. The whole section of the fight would appear to be a fantastical comparison of the Japanese Do and Jutsu philosophies. Darth Maul is a perfect fighting machine, totally committed to war, which was at the base of the Jutsu systems. By contrast, Qui-Gon Jinn embraces life and the universe using his powers to become a better person, which is reflective of the Do philosophy of the martial arts expression. Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, contain more lightsaber action in each individual film than any of the others. CGI gives the little green Supreme Jedi Master Yoda his long-awaited duel sequence as he whizzes all over the screen like a whirling dervish of energy in both films. The Anakin Skywalker Darth Tyrannus battle in Episode 2 and Episode 3 is distinctly mirrored in Episode 5 and 6, although Anakin, destined to become Darth Vader, has a much shorter fight the first time he faces his opposite number than Luke does against Vader. The end result is similar. Both are defeated and end up with amputated appendages that are replaced by mechanical versions and are both are destined for rematches. However, the second time around, when they bring their opponents to their knees, Anakin and Luke take distinctly different paths. Whereas, in Episode 6, Luke's refusal to join the Dark Side and kill his father prompts the destruction of the evil Sith Lord Palpatine and the redemption of Anakin Skywalker, Anakin, in Episode 3, finishes the job off, kills Tyrannus and becomes Darth Vader, Palpatine's apprentice. Stunt coordinator and ace swordsman Nick Gilliard was brought on board for the lightsaber duels of the three prequels. Gilliard is responsible for what Lucasfilm quickly described to the press of the time as the Jedi style, the title for the unique, sophisticated and expressive styles of the individual combatants. The Star Wars expanded universe, novels, information, books and comics that give other authors artistic license over events happening within the Star Wars mythology outside the films, were quick to jump on all these differing styles and even came up with a description for the various forms. Form 1 was the basic form. Form 2 was the antiquated style designed for duelling other lightsabers. Form 3 dealt with defending against enemy blaster fire. Form 4 was acrobatic and elaborate. Form 5 concentrated on attack and domination. Form 6 was the balancing diplomatic form. And the undeveloped Form 7 was the ultimate discipline with an unpredictable staccato movement. The expanded universe authors went further into the lightsaber styles by giving alien titles to the lightsaber points of contact. 
from destroying an enemy's weapon, Sun de Gem, to cutting an opponent in half, say Tok. A fantasy martial art had been established. When parents aren't around, a young person's guide to self-protection has been completely updated and re-released as an ebook. Please note, if you already have a copy of the original, ignore Amazon's statement that you already own this book. Not only has the entire text been revised and re-edited, but also new material has been added, including a new chapter and photographs throughout depicting scenarios and training drills. My intention is to get this work out to the people who need it the most, therefore I've taken a third off the original ebook price. And for the first time in the history of its publication, When Parents Aren't Around is available as a paperback. These editions contain all the new material previously described. You can order copies from Amazon, or if you would like a signed copy, you can order directly from me via the usual email address. Let me know if your club would like a bulk order too. Be a part of the change in booking me to run a seminar based on the material and help launch the book. I'm also in the process of developing an extended programme that can be provided as bolt-on courses for children, and this will include a certified CCMA teaching course, the very first I have offered. Star Wars has most probably the largest fan club in the world. Since the early days when new director George Lucas struggled to get a production company to take on his dead genre movie in the mid-1970s and insisted on keeping the merchandising rights, movie memorabilia has ballooned into a powerful industry. As countless toys, posters, magazines, comics, model kits, novels, audiobooks, drinks, food, play suits, movie spin-offs and cartoons are sold off the back of their association with the Star Wars product, the culture of the films seeped into our society. The last public census even saw a reasonable percentage of the UK declaring their religion to be Jedi. Phrases from the films have caught on as cliches, and so have ideas. The martial arts world was no different. The martial artist Kevin Brewerton even adopted the nickname the Jedi in the 1980s during his tournament career. Sadly, we've also seen a lot of superficial aspects of Star Wars represented in a bad light in the martial arts culture. Stories have come back about people being knocked out and moved by an invisible energy. These magical tales have been about long before the original Star Wars trilogy was first screened. We find some of the most tragic and appalling examples of martial arts mystic fraud during the Boxer Uprising in China during the 1900s, when martial arts warriors were famously convinced that invisible powers would deflect the bullets of the Eight Nation Alliance. The literal way Jedis wield their invisible energy powers is comparable to the charade often propagated by the fraudsters in the martial arts industry to this day. Traditional medicine practices and internal martial arts are often cheapened and sold to the masses using circus tricks and mass hysteria. Martial arts cults are formed by charlatans and embraced by the naive and the delusional. This has led to some professing to have a type of force-like power and many others ready to believe in it. I'm not saying Star Wars culture is directly responsible for this, that would be ludicrous, but the similarity between the on-screen performance and the real-life hustle cannot be ignored. The Force is the single phrase used to describe the prominent martial art in Star Wars. Users of this power are the Jedi Knights and the Sith Lords. Samurai culture is often certainly a strong reference point for these Jedi Knight characters, focused, trained and noble warriors who are employed as keepers of the peace. Their evil counterparts, the Sith, go against this Bushido-like code and are the antithesis of what Japanese culture respects. The Order of the Sith embrace anger and fear, 
the way that leads to the dark side, as Yoda, the wisest of the Jedi characters, says in Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. The dark side of the Force is a quick easy route that is all about aggression and hatred. One solid cautionary ethic that is taught in all good martial arts schools is to never misuse your skills. Another resounding philosophy taught by most dedicated martial artists is to accept that their chosen art or arts can be found in everything. Likewise, Yoda explains that the Force surrounds us. He describes the human form and what normal people see and feel to be crude by comparison to this all-binding, all-powerful energy. It is a spiritual metaphor and is easy to compare with martial arts philosophy. Learning martial arts requires a degree of feeling certain techniques. I know from my recent transition from mainly striking to grappling arts how lengthy and sometimes frustrating a procedure it can be to get this feeling. Religion is bound up in many of the traditional Asian martial arts, particularly in various styles of Shaolin Kung Fu, Shorinji Kampo, Aikido and Goju Ryu Karate. In modern times we find that many of the arts have become so bound up in abstract ritual that they are often dismissed as ineffective as the new systems take centre stage. There is also a strong issue of individual and collective faith that I have discovered happens amongst the martial arts community. As our society changes, our scepticism for the past grows. Likewise, in episode 4, when nearly all of the Jedi have become eradicated some 19 years previously, the memory of the Force has almost been completely wiped out. It is even referred to as an old religion by the Imperial Senior Officer Grand Moff Tarkin, and is not believed in by the jaded smuggler Han Solo. The first character thinks of it as antiquated and therefore no longer an issue, and the latter one considers it as so much mumbo-jumbo. How often have we heard or read similar opinions on martial arts? The Jedi Temple and the celibate monkish lives led by the Jedi Knights in Episodes 1-3, to along with a more flamboyant fight choreography, seems to indicate that Lucas was drawing almost as much from the Chinese Shaolin arts in the prequels as he was from the Japanese warrior culture in the original trilogy, episodes 4-6, to if you are keeping up. The martial arts historical connection is even more appropriate when we consider that popular theory often places Chinese martial arts being established before the systems in surrounding Asian countries. Which we know is nonsense, present day Jamie. The last instalment of the Star Wars saga, Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith, ties together the entire series and puts the tragedy of Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker, his rise, fall and redemption, at the centre of the continuing storyline. It's a fable that underlines the ethics of martial arts. We see someone who is extraordinarily gifted and with good intentions becoming tainted by tragic circumstances and seduced by power. Sadly, I've seen many good martial artists who are held in high esteem by their peers lose their centre and become consumed by the easy path because they were vulnerable, greedy or impatient. It happened to me when a kickboxing instructor promised me a lifestyle of wealth and fame only to find myself hating the way I was teaching and feeling guilty about what I was teaching. The character of Anakin, who becomes Darth Vader, commits heinous crimes in the latest film after he feels that his fellow Jedis are holding him back from his true potential and threatening the evil Chancellor Palpatine, who Anakin believes is helping him. Palpatine is really manipulating the precocious Jedi for his own ends. Emperor Palpatine, a master of the dark side of the Force himself, builds an almighty galactic empire that suppresses Jedis in a manner that could be symbolically compared to the way the Samurais were made obsolete in the 19th century and martial arts in general have been suppressed by occupying powers. Examples can be drawn from the slave masters who forced their human thralls to hide their fighting arts in dances forming capoeira to the fabled massacre of the Shaolin monks by their emperor 
an appropriately direct comparison with Episode 3's Jedi Temple Slaughter to the suppression of Korean and Japanese martial arts by the forces that occupied them during and after World War II respectively. So in conclusion, we have seen that George Lucas was undeniably influenced by samurai culture when he first made Star Wars and later when he made the prequel trilogy. He recognised not only the very obvious advances in cinematic technology, but also the level of sophistication that fight choreography had reached, thanks to the acceptance of Far Eastern directors and stars into the mainstream. Furthermore, the philosophies behind the culture that are entwined in the various Asian martial arts were also in Lucas's mind. Yoda is the film's strongest voice piece on these issues, and he is seen in a teaching capacity throughout the series. His famous line, Size Matters Not, is a dictum that could be written in any number of judo or aikido instruction manuals and was pretty much the message that Bruce Lee represented in his films. When Luke Skywalker tells the wizened teacher that he will try his best, Yoda gives it to him like a true martial arts instructor. Quote, Try not. Do or do not. There is no try. End quote. Later, when Yoda succeeds in doing an incredible feat that Luke has given up on, the young Jedi in training exclaims in astonishment, I don't believe it, to which Yoda simply explains, quote unquote, that is why you fail. It is faith in the inner spirit and commitment to it that makes Star Wars a great martial arts fable. Lack of faith leads to evil things happening and undying faith ultimately prevails. My real martial arts heroes are all people who have a strong belief system, they're knocked down by intangible and tangible obstacles and are tested relentlessly. But in the end, they are the ones standing while their detractors and opponents fall by the wayside. It often must feel like they're facing an empire of opponents. But like the rebel forces in Star Wars, they remain resolute and work hard to regain their balance. They never give up. We all fall and lose at times, but it's important to look at life like a saga and rather than relying on natural talent alone and dashing for the easy route to success, we should remain patient, trusting our instincts and learning from those who have trodden the path before us. To sum it up in the words of Obi-Wan Kenobi, Trust your feelings. It's always interesting to look back at reflective articles. Um, I have to say that some of my opinions have somewhat altered, not only with regards to Star Wars, but in regards to my look at the martial arts world. Uh, It seems a little naive in part. I wouldn't put so much into faith. That might be changed to self-belief and justified confidence. Uh, But yeah, an interesting experience all round. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this little piece of bonus material an archive from uh, the old way i used to write some 18 years ago and i look forward to producing our rather mammoth star wars episode see you then my other books wrong foo and mordred's victory and other martial mutterings are also available through amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks and i'm also selling signed copies These works are collections of rewritten and re-edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Rong Fu is a prequel to my Bullshit Sue and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. 
These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com for details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltale or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I would be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last, TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there, as well as filming of my various lessons, so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel, to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.